Why is tonight different than any other night? Why is tonight different than any other night? This is a question that the youngest child in a Jewish family would ask their father on the night of the Passover. To which the father would reply, Once we were slaves in Egypt, but now we are free. We set aside this night each year to remember the great things God did for us. And on the question and answer would go, each Passover night, youngest child asking the father a question, and why do they do this every year? To remember. To remember. The Passover, one of the high points of the Jewish calendar, is the day that they remember when God rescued them from the iron grip of the Egyptians, when they were slaves in Egypt and delivered by God. Now, during the days that Jesus walked on the earth, the Passover had taken on a new significance. It still had a theological significance. It was when you know, God rescued them from Egypt. But now, they weren't slaves in Egypt anymore, but they were as good as slaves in their own country by the Roman Empire. So, it wasn't just a theological holiday, it was also, in a way, a nationalistic holiday. Kind of like our 4th of July. Now, I know that's kind of hard to, to believe, or hard to, to think about, because 4th of July is really just an excuse for barbecuing and blowing things up, right? But let's imagine that Planet X, or Country Y, or something like that, conquered the United States. And you and I still lived in our houses, but there was somebody else in charge. Oppressed us, taxed us... Every year on the 4th of July, wouldn't it have new significance? Not just significance of what happened hundreds of years ago when we became a country, but hope for the future. This is what's going on during Jesus' day, during the Passover time. People hoping that another Passover might happen, that another exodus might happen, that God might deliver them from the Roman Empire. Why all this talk of Passover on September 27th? Well, it really has nothing to do with the date. It has to do with the scripture we're going to look at this evening. John chapter 6. In, in particular, we're going to focus on John 6, verses 20 through, through 40. But as Eric read, kind of the background, uh, what, one of the things we learn from John is that it is the Passover season. It's the Passover time. In the beginning of John chapter 6, we learn that this large crowd was following Jesus. Why? Because they had seen His signs. He was healing people all over the place. Now, the people went out in the wilderness with Jesus, and you know the story, just got read. They run out of food, or they don't plan for food. A boy has five loaves and two fish, and what does Jesus do? He multiplies this food, he multiplies this food and feeds over 5,000 people. And what is that like? It's a little bit like Moses in the wilderness after God had rescued the people from the Egyptians and he provided bread through Moses. Now think, all this Passover imagery is fresh in your mind if you're a Jewish person around this time. Now this man Jesus comes and he feeds 5,000 people and you think, wait a minute, maybe, just maybe, this man Jesus is another Moses-like figure. What if he's the Messiah? What if he's the one that God has brought to deliver us from the Romans? And the people go kind of crazy and they, they try and call him the prophet and they want to make him king and Jesus knows... Jesus knows that they, they don't really understand what it means for Him to be King yet. 
In fact, they won't understand that until after He's died on a cross and been resurrected. So, what does Jesus do? He escapes. He withdraws. He heads up a mountain. Kind of like a famous Old Testament figure, Moses. But anyway, I'm just saying. So he goes up to this mountain. He sends his disciples across the sea in their boat. And later on, after nightfall, Jesus stealthily, I guess, I don't know, it doesn't say that, but read stealth. He sneaks down the mountain. He comes walking on the water comes walking on the water. And then they do some really cool like hyperspace thing where the boat just appears on the other side. Um, yeah, that's a different sermon. It's going to hyperspace in the Bible. Jesus gets to the other side and now we enter our story. And once again, would you please stand for the reading of the Gospel. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered the boat his disciples had, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Now there came other small boats from Tiberias near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore, they said to him, well, What sign will, will you do? So that, or, or what work may we do that we could work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I say to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I certainly will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me... I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. You may be seated. You know, you really don't need a sermon after a text like that. But I guess you pay me to preach, so I'll not be here. Give you a sermon. Jesus gets to the other side. The people realize, apparently, that he'd gotten there in some way without a boat. 
And they want to know how he gets to the other side. So they just ask him straight up, Rabbi, how did you get here? And Jesus does something that sounds weird. He, he makes a statement that seems weird, but as we've been reading in John, Jesus makes weird statements a lot. Do you remember Nicodemus, the encounter at night? John chapter 3. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that anyone who does the things you do must be from God. And Jesus doesn't even humor him at all. He just says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Okay, kind of out of context, kind of seems weird. Woman at the well, she's, she asks Jesus for this living water, and he says, Go bring your husband, like out of the blue. And what Jesus is doing in these stories is getting to the heart of the matter. So in our story, the people say, Rabbi, how did you get here? Or when did you get here? And he just cuts to the chase and says, You know, you're seeking me, not because of signs, but because of the food. Because of the food. In those days, oftentimes the Roman Empire would satiate, they would, they would appease people by giving them meals of really cheap barley loaves at times. Basically, over 70% of the people in the Roman Empire were extremely poor, slave class or below. And so the, the emperors, they didn't really care about the people, they cared about two things that the taxes got paid on time and that people didn't revolt. So every once in a while they might come to your village and send, send an envoy and they would give everyone free food and that would make them happy for a while. Now we kind of have a system like that today. It's called the Entourage. In fact, there's a TV show called Entourage and I haven't really watched it but I get the gist of it. Some rich or famous person has a lot of money and they get an entourage. People follow them around. And why do they follow them around? Because they get into cool clubs, they get to eat fancy food, drive nice cars, have their 15 minutes of fame, right? But what happens when that famous person or wealthy person suddenly becomes less famous or less wealthy? The entourage scatter like cockroaches. <laughs> There's no real friendship or loyalty in an entourage. Jesus doesn't want an entourage. He isn't looking for people who just want to get their bellies filled. He's not opposed to us being well fed. You remember just a few weeks ago we preached through the, Lord, the Lord's Prayer and He says to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But Jesus knows that we need much more than bread, doesn't He? That's why even in the Lord's Prayer, after give us this day our daily bread, He tells us to ask for forgiveness for our sin and to forgive others. He asks us that God would deliver us from the evil one, right? There is more to life than simply bread. And it's not even that people ask for too much. In fact, I think most of us are guilty of asking for too little. Asking for too little. How many times do I even catch myself praying for perishable things? How much of our, our life effort is spent on perishable things? Listen, we're physical beings. God made us that way and that is good. We need food and clothing and shelter. Those things are necessities just like National Football League. But one of those things might not be a necessity, but it may not be the NFL. Jesus assures us though that the Father already knows all our needs. And what He calls us to do is seek first the kingdom of God. All of the perishable things will be added to us. So what are you seeking from Jesus these days? I know I struggle with the danger
dangerous difference between being in Jesus' entourage and being His disciple. There's a very fine line. And I seem to, to skirt it on both sides all the time. You know, I believe in my mind, in my mouth, that I want to follow Jesus, I want to trust Him. But oftentimes in my heart, I'm just looking for the next handout from Him, from what He can do for me. It's easy to forget that we're blessed to be a blessing. That every bit of wealth we might have or scrap of influence that, that God gives us, every good thing is, is meant not only to bless us, but for us to bless others with it in Jesus' name. This is old, old stuff from Genesis chapter 12. This is what God says to Abram. He says, I will bless you and your people to be a blessing to the world. And we're part of that story right now. so easy to live hand to mouth investing in perishable things but what if we invest our blessings in commodities that don't perish like relationships like helping people who can't pay us back or speaking up for justice when it's inconvenient Lettered Street's Covenant Church I see you doing this to a degree already because of the generosity of this congregation, just since our launch in April, we have given thousands of dollars to Agape House, to various missionaries overseas, Parkview Elementary helping in the school supply drive. You've been a part of this because you're investing in imperishable things. You've donated your skills, like I mentioned about Karina today, helping with her skills. You've donated your time generously. You've taken a huge risk just to sit here and be part of a church plant. You've left the comfort of maybe your mother church or other places of comfort to come here. Not the fanciest place. Not the best preaching. But you believe in what God is doing. That's awesome. The crux of the issue that Jesus is getting at here is whether or not we're living hand-to-mouth or hand-in-hand with Him. Another way of saying that, a, a good pastor friend of mine puts it like this, are you a seeker or a snacker? A seeker or a snacker? When we live hand-to-mouth, when we're just seeking Jesus for the snacks, we seek Jesus for what He can give us. And once He's given us what we need, we forget about Him. Until the next crisis or the next need. But when we live hand-to-hand, we're seeking a relationship. We're seeking to take Jesus' hand, to trust Him, to trust Him alone. Well, it's easy for me to be up here and be a bag of hot air talking about trusting Jesus. It's much easier said than done. In the story, people ask, okay, what can we do? What can we do to work the works of God? And when you think about it, the people asking this question are extremely arrogant. You know why? In asking Jesus, hey, what can we do to work the works of God? They're saying, we can work the works of God. We can do it. Jesus, tell us what to do and we'll do it. Tell us what interpretation of the law to follow and we'll do it. What task should we do? We'll do it. And Jesus' answer to them 
is challenging. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Literally, that you trust in Jesus. I don't know about you, I'd almost rather have a checklist. Give me these ten things to do, because that's way easier in our culture, I think, than just placing our trust in Jesus. No, seriously, what can I do? I'm an American. I have an education. I've got a strong will. I'm smart enough to figure this out. Seriously, God, I can help you accomplish your plan. I can help your kingdom come. Just tell me. Tell me what to do. I'm ready. Tell me what to read. What group should I join? What ministry should I work in? How long should I pray? Just tell me what to do. You know, besides simply trusting in you. When I wrote that paragraph, I thought, that sounds stupid. I erased it, and I wrote the same thing again. You know why? Maybe you can identify with this. I'm addicted to my independence. I'm addicted to trying to do it myself. Like a good American man, right? Is there an area of your life that you're not fully giving over to Christ? Are you trying to maintain control? Maybe it's over just one situation that's just leading you to frustration and exhaustion. Let's just take the gift of space. We're not in a hurry. Why don't we take a minute? Probably feel like the longest 60 seconds in your life. Think about one area that you're reluctant to give Jesus control over. Maybe you want to write it down. I don't know. Let's take a minute now. If you are fed up with trying to get life right on your own, you're in a good place. That is the first step towards recovery. Toward being able to honestly say with integrity, Lord, give me this bread. Give me this bread. So often though, we're like the crowds, aren't we? Who then ask Jesus... What sign will you give us? You know, signs are a funny thing. They can be staring you right in the face, and some people get them, and some people don't. Some of you have heard the story of how Corey and I broke the news of our first pregnancy with our parents. Four years ago, we were, well, Corey was with child, with uh, Sophia in her tummy. And we decided, wow, it would be really cool to surprise our, our folks on Mother's Day. So on Mother's Day, we take our moms out to lunch, and my dad was there too. And in these identical gift bags, we had placed little picture frames that said, I heart grandma, with an ultrasound picture inside. 
We made sure that they opened them at the same time, and they just went crazy. And you know, my dad's crying and kissing me, and every, everyone's just everyone got it. it got the sign. It's, we didn't just give them a picture frame. We were saying there's something greater beyond this picture frame. There's a, a life inside Corey. Well, Corey's parents aren't together, and so later on that evening, we went to see her dad at Corey's grandmother's Mother's Day celebration. Give him the same thing. little picture frame that says, I heart grandpa, with an ultrasound picture inside. He opens it, and blank stare. He says, what an odd photo to come with a picture frame. <laughs> no, Dad, what does it say on the picture frame? I heart grandpa. Did you get it on sale? I'm seriously, like, like, didn't, like, stunned, just stunned. The sign is right there. Didn't get it. In fact, it was days later when he sends this glowing email, like, I am so excited to be a grandpa. But I was like, are you serious? Like, right in his face. But that's kind of what's going on with the crowds right now. Like, they asked Jesus for this sign, and these are the same folks that had just seen him turn five loaves and two fish into a multitude of bread with 12 baskets left over. This is the people that, assumingly, they know the story that Jesus had walked on the water, even if they didn't know that. They were only in the wilderness in the first place because they saw his signs of healing. Some of them had even heard about the turning water to wine. This is amazing. They're looking for one like Moses. But one greater than Moses is staring them in the face. Moses didn't feed the people of Israel. God did. Moses didn't part the Red Sea. God did. But wait a minute. Jesus fed the 5,000 with food left over. Jesus not only manipulated the water of the sea, He walked on top of it. Job, Job 9.8 says that God treads on the water. Jesus does things only God can do. Get the goosebumps yet? The crowds are a little slow on the uptake, so they ask for this bread and... All they're doing is thinking with their bellies. They don't realize that the living God is standing right in front of them. Leslie Newbigin writes, They're ready to believe that Jesus can give them what they seek. They have yet to learn He is what they need. They're ready to believe that Jesus can give them what they seek. But they are not at a place to realize He is what they need. Now, Jesus, once again, cuts to the chase. And I sometimes wonder, you know, if I were to meet Jesus face to face, I think he might be a little abrupt sometimes because he doesn't even mince words with them. He just says this, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. This is number one of seven I am statements in John's Gospel. Do you know where the first I am statement in Scripture is? Yell it out. Thank you, Michael. Yes, from the account of the Exodus. Would the Exodus have been fresh in their minds during Passover time? Yes. 
Yes, Moses meets God in this burning bush experience. God tells him to go to Pharaoh to deliver the people. Moses says, who do I send? Or who do I say sent me? Yahweh says, you tell them, I am sent you. You tell them, I am sent you. Look at all this Exodus imagery. Feeding the 5,000, manipulating the water. Jesus claiming to be the I am. What a statement. And what a symbol. Bread of life. Did you know the majority of people in Jesus' day, especially the less elite, bread was the staple of their diet. 50% of an average person's daily calories came from bread. And it's telling that Jesus doesn't say, I'm the salad of life, or the dessert of life, or the appetizer of life. He's it. He's the bread of life. He's the main thing, the staple food. He is life. The hunger and thirst He satisfies is the hunger and thirst most pressing in our hearts. And I dare say every heart. And that is right relatedness with God the Father. Right relatedness with God the Father. Deep down, all of our stuff, I think there's a hunger in the human heart for God. This is good news. And it gets even better. You know, Jesus doesn't consider our smarts, our nationality, our socioeconomic status. He doesn't consider our gender, our age. None of these are prerequisites to eternal life. He trusts that the Father draws people to Him. And this means at least three things. First of all, of all whom the Father brings to Him, He will cast out none. Of all that the Father brings to Him, He will cast out none. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God? They were literally cast out. Many, many years later, after the Hebrew Scriptures were written, they were translated into Greek. And the word is ekbalo, cast out. Now, this is what I love about Scripture. I love John's writing. I love how Jesus uses very specific words. And it's really cool. Because Jesus has a lot of different ways of saying, you know, all that the Father brings to me, I take care of, or I won't lose sight of. But He uses the exact words, I will not cast out. What I think is going on here is an undoing of the curse in Genesis 3. The original people were cast out because of rebellion. Jesus is saying, all whom the Father bring to me, I will cast out none. And you may be saying, hey, preacher man, you don't know what I've done. That sounds good news for everybody else, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've thought. You don't know what I've left undone. Hear the good news. The Father has drawn you here before Jesus. And you place your trust in Him, you will not be cast out. Period. Full stop. Amen? Alright, look alive now. Second, the eternal life Jesus offers us begins now. 
It begins now. Many of you have already been transformed because you've been walking with Jesus for maybe a year or five years or most of your life. You've seen the tremendous ways that God has worked and changed you and He is not done with you yet. Jesus will change our lives. That's just what He does. Give us a new life of hope and perseverance. And guess what? We don't get to escape suffering. We don't get to escape hardship. But the hope that we have is for a glorious future for one. And the promise that God works everything for good. For those who love Him. For those who are called according to His purpose. The Father... The Father will not cast you out. And you begin to live the God life now. Now third, and related to the first two, of all those the Father gives the Son, Jesus will lose none of them. You cannot be plucked out of Jesus' hand once you're in there. Now, there's lots of theological debate uh, as far as, well, if you're in Jesus' hand, you can walk out on your own free will. And then others say, well, once you're in there, you just can't get out. That's not what this sermon is about. And know that there's great scholarly support for both views. Here's what John chapter 6 says. Once the Father has drawn you and you are in Jesus' palm of His hand, no no thing and no one and not all the powers of evil can take you out. Nothing can take you out of the Father's hand. Awesome. Now, here's the reality. How can I say this nicely about us? The reality is that we humans are marvelously complex. It means we're pretty screwed up. You and I both know it is very possible to trust Jesus with part of our life, most of our life, and still to hold back certain areas, isn't it? We can be hand-in-hand with Jesus in certain areas and then live hand-to-mouth in other areas. That's just the reality. And let me just clear the air. No one except Jesus has ever done it all right. Okay, so we're all in the same boat, right? We're all recovering sinners here. So what would it look like for you and I to take one step closer... One step closer to fully trusting Jesus. Maybe, maybe it's that one thing you wrote down earlier or you were thinking about. But what would it look like for you to take one step closer to fully trusting Jesus as bread in your life? He will not cast you out. Let's pray.